Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Chris Lee. Commodore fans, on your feet, it's time to anchor down. Welcome to the Vandy Sports Podcast presented by Dr. Jody Jones DDS. We're part of the 440 Sports Network. I'm your host, Chris Lee. Our guest today is Luke Wyatt who is a longtime insider with Vanderbilt Athletics. We will talk about a lot of stuff. Pretty interesting and sometimes funny podcast with Luke. So I think you'll really enjoy today's episode. Luke appears on the guest line. That's presented by Michael Kendrick of the Kendrick Group. Michael is a local carpenter and a lifelong Vanderbilt fan. He builds bookshelves, cabinets, picture frames, furniture and made-to-order items, including a display case for my prized Dale Murphy jersey. I've seen Michael's work. He's a true craftsman. If you're in the market for custom woodwork, give Michael a call. That number, 615-830-9458. Now on to our episode with Luke Wyatt. Luke Wyatt joins me today, as he does every week. If you are a longtime listener of this podcast, you know Luke Worked inside the Vanderbilt Athletic Department for a long, long time. Uh, Knows just about anything and everything about how that place ran at the time he was there. Has probably more connections at the school than just about anybody I know. Um, In any case, a lot going on at Vanderbilt Athletics this week, Luke. Thanks for joining us on your vacation to discuss those things. Absolutely. How are you doing, Chris? Doing really well. Uh, it looks like we've got an interesting game coming up this week against South Carolina. Vanderbilt also had good scrimmage results in baseball and basketball. I don't know how much we can get into those. I'm still awaiting word mm-hmm. of details from the Xavier scrimmage with basketball, which Vanderbilt apparently won by 20 points. Um, so there's that. There's the baseball scrimmage. I think Vanderbilt played Arizona State for 10-ish innings. On Sunday, won that one twenty to two. Although I think the pitching for both teams is probably not what we're going to see as much in the regular season. Right. So is that, and and then there's maybe a little bit of hope given the way South Carolina played its football game with Missouri last weekend, and and the other side of that bookend is that uh, maybe losing to Missouri by three points at Columbia doesn't look so bad if you consider. Missouri's recent history, uh, which includes also that near miss against Georgia back about a month ago. No, I agree. I think except for about three or four teams in this conference, say Tennessee, Ole Miss, Bama, and Georgia, everybody else is kind of, if they're not playing well, uh, you can have a fourth quarter game with them uh, from 14 to to five. Now, winning the game is another thing, but far as playing a competitive football game against them, none of the rest of them really scare you. Yeah, I mean, I think the matchups ahead are certainly winnable. I I was looking today at some SEC stats, and I'll I'll maybe pull these up while we're doing this. Um, You know, one thing that stood out to me is Vanderbilt has already played the three best defenses probably in the league. Missouri might be the the third in that group now. Um, I agree with you. I agree with you. And, I thought Missouri's final excuse me. It was incredible. Yeah. And you know, offenses, I mean, they played Georgia, they played Alabama. That's two of the better ones in the league. Ole Miss, certainly. So, I mean, you look and 
You look at some some of the opponents, South Carolina not that great on offense. Spencer Rattler's been a turnover machine so far. Um, you look ahead to Florida. Florida's been erratic at quarterback. Its defense has been kind of porous, which you don't really expect for a Florida team. And in Kentucky, certainly looked very vulnerable, although Tennessee is just a buzzsaw right now. Um, and so you got to yeah. – Make that clarification, but yeah, I mean there there's some there's some weakness in some teams I had on the schedule. That doesn't mean Vanderbilt's going to win. I, I think it's still got an uphill battle in all those games. But the point is, you compare what is ahead to what is behind, and it should get a lot easier. I think a lot of that now is just going to depend on how the Commodores come out of the the bye week, and as you've mentioned before, uh, coming to the Missouri game, what is that body language like? How, how dialed into these players and, and those sorts of things. Right. And, and you know, I, I think about Florida, especially how they approach our games a lot of times, especially if it's an 11 a.m. kick. Uh, a lot of times we've played Florida, those 11 a.m. kicks, and they're not ready to play. And we've either been ahead at halftime or, in fact, we've been way ahead before at halftime and lost them. But if you, you can catch them early and punch them in the mouth, a lot of times Florida doesn't care about playing us by this, that time of year because they don't really have anything to gain. Yeah, and I think with Billy Napier, that's probably a little bit different. But yes, we have seen it play it play out that way before. Right. right. Yeah, and, and you look now, uh, Vanderbilt probably caught, uh, you know, debatably the best two teams in, in the West, in Ole Miss and Alabama. LSU probably better than Ole Miss, I and mean, it did beat Ole Miss head to right. head, but but point you know the East is tougher than people thought. I mean, the schedule we knew going into the season was going to be tough, but uh, ESPN's FPI's got the schedule they played at number one, I think, in the country. It has to um, be. I, I can't imagine anybody's schedule being tougher than what we've had to do. Yeah, I mean, you know, even the the games with Hawaii and Northern Illinois, where they were not, not going to say built in wins, they were actually underdogs in the NIU game, were on the road. Um. You know, so so there was that. I mean, it, look, it's and it's not just it's not just that they played a tough schedule. It's that you got those Alabama, those Georgia games, which historically have just been so demoralizing to Vanderbilt teams in the past. Right, and they were stacked together. It wasn't like you it was spotted around. You you had to play those three right back to back to back. You had an off week in there, but you still consecutive against three teams that talent wise, you're. Uh, you know, way down the, at the bottom of the barrel with the, compared to those guys. and that, That's just a tough thing to overcome for anybody. Well, what are you looking for in the final month of the season? How much of a shot do you think Vanderbilt's got to pick one of these teams off? What else of interest? And, of course, you've got a lot of experience to draw on before with seasons that weren't going well. And, you know, you try to find your motivation in November. The coaching staff usually has its work cut out for it in that regard. I think – that's the case again this year. So, w- with all that, what are you looking to happen? Well, what are you I, looking I for to happen I, in the next month? I went to practice um, Tuesday or Wednesday of last week before I left for vacation and watched the entire practice. Uh, it was thud. It wasn't, you know, live or anything. But I was amazed by how spirited it was. It was kind of like a week one or week two of practice to me, and I, I was really kind of surprised by that. Um, I felt like the kids were loose and having a good time and trying to get better. And, uh, I, I just, I feel like they're actually in an okay spot. I think these last game, few games 
<clears throat> except for probably Tennessee because their offense is just clicking on all cylinders. Except for that game, the rest of them could be similar to the Missouri game. Um, you know, I, I was looking, trying to compare some things that's gone on this year, and I, the way Wake Forest played the other day, if they play that way against us, then we've got another win under our belt. You know, Wake, I don't know, they have eight turnovers or something crazy like that. Um, you know, so it, it doesn't, every Saturday's so different. You have no idea who's going to show up with, with not just Vanderbilt, everybody. South Carolina could come out, lay it on the ground two or three times, and we could be up 14 instead of down 14 nothing. So, I feel like every game except the UT game uh, should be ultra competitive if we do our part and uh, we don't turn it over a bunch or something, that it could be fourth quarter games. Why has that South Carolina game been so tricky? I don't think Vanderbilt's won that since 2008. And look, I I know the obvious answer is South Carolina most years is better, uh, and I wouldn't dispute that. But there's been a few years where it's not been that way, the Sean Elliott interim year. Vanderbilt went to Columbia and just played about as poorly as you can in a game right. that nobody wanted to win, and, and Carolina won. Uh, you know, you look right after that was when Spurrier had it rolling, and so I get those. But I mean, there have been years Vanderbilt had as good, you know, maybe a little better team, or was right there in the ballpark with a chance to win and just laid an egg. And you know, including last year, had the lead with yeah. what a minute left and, and blew it. So how do you explain Carolina's? stranglehold over Vanderbilt in this series? I don't think you can explain it. There's always a team, other than, of course, the teams that are just always better than you, that you just seem to struggle with. And South Carolina is just our, you know, we just can't get over the hump with those guys. I don't know why. I I remember beating them when they were sixth in the nation. Maybe that's the last time we beat them when Bobby Johnson was here and we won at South Carolina with Mackenzie Adams at quarterback. Uh, you know, so the last time we did beat them, we weren't, you know, you, we weren't expected to beat them. Uh, it's kind of like in the past, in the 90s, we owned Kentucky. We could not lose to Kentucky. I don't care if we played poorly. We still beat Kentucky back in the 90s. It, it was crazy. I think we won like five in a row against them. So I, I, there's nothing you can point to that explains that, except for the fact that they just got a little bit of a jinx on you. I, I, I really don't know. I don't think there's anything you can say that explains it. Yeah, they, they've beaten Carolina once since then. I remember the game you were talking about. Carolina was ranked top 10. Uh, maybe I don't think they were top five, but it was top 10. It ended up not being a very good Carolina team. I think that team was 5-0 and oh, ended up 6-5. and five. Vanderbilt pulled right. a road upset in an ugly game. And then... Vanderbilt beat Carolina. It was 2008. Chris Nixon was the quarterback. Um, right. Man, I'd, I'd forgotten all about that game, but I, I think that's the last one they got. I think that's when Jared Cook was playing at South Carolina. I'll, I'll look that up. I'm pulling the box score as we speak, but I believe that was the last time Vanderbilt beat Carolina. I can remember the one game that probably ticked me off more than any of them and I'm not going to remember the kid's name that played quarterback for South Carolina, but he was a highly recruited kid <clears throat> that was like an option type quarterback that really was more of a receiver. And he played quarterback yeah. the whole day and was filming And I was like, man, no way we should have lost that football game. That's, that's, you know, if you play it 10 times, we would have won eight of them, I think. But, uh, yeah, we've had some real frustrating meetings with those guys. And I'm hoping Saturday all that gets washed out of the way. How have coaches in the past 
been able to get teams motivated in this scenario? Does more often than not, does it just fall apart, or did you have a lot of coaches that you saw that were able to get teams motivated down the stretch? Well, ironically, one of the best teams in the second half of the season uh, was one of Watson Brown's teams. We had we had started the season, I want to say one in six, or maybe one in seven, and won every game going into the Tennessee game and lost it, but we won like four in a row. And we were sitting in a situation that was even worse than this. We were like, like I said, one in seven. And we beat Maryland, Rutgers, and uh, an SEC team, either an Ole Miss or Kentucky, all in a row. So that's the thing. There, and I remember there was nothing magical about that. It's just whether or not the kids still have, number one, confidence that they can still win a football game, which I think Missouri gave them that. Even though we lost, I think they see, hey, look, we can play with just about everybody in this league with the exception of the ultra-talented ones. And I think that's the key. I think they look at South Carolina, and even though we've lost a bunch in a row, I think in their mind they think, well, South Carolina is South Carolina. They're not that much better. And then they look at this score. Kids do look at scores. They're going to look and say, okay, Carolina just got beat by Missouri a lot worse than we did this past weekend on their home field. So, yes, we can beat them. And if they come out with that mindset, play well, don't turn the ball over, uh, we'll have a, we'll have a great chance. And I do think that motivation-wise, I, they know the. I think they're smart enough to know this is a process. I know people get tired of hearing that, but it is. It, it, it's we're right in the throes of it. We're in the, one of the toughest times of rebuilding a program that was flat on its face. And uh, for these kids to still be playing hard like they did in the second half and and hold Missouri to zero points in the second half last week, I think that tells you a lot about the character of some of these kids. Well, if people didn't see Carolina-Missouri, Missouri just dominated the first half of that game. I think total offense yep. at one point was in the ballpark of 250-50. to 50. Um, Rattler was awful, which he's been a lot of the season. Did you think it was better for Vanderbilt for South Carolina to play that way? Uh, and then have a lot of mo- motivation to get better against a, a, a game that it's going to view as winnable. And Vegas has established the Gamecocks, I think, is seven-point favorites in this one. Or would it have been better for the opposite to happen, where Carolina wins? You know, you, maybe you can make the case. Although with Shane Beamer's teams, I don't think this has been the case, that maybe they're a little confident. Um, yeah, they'd still be ranked in the top 25. Coming to Vandy, a place where they've won umpteen times in a row, you know, doesn't look too daunting. Which scenario do you think plays better for Vanderbilt? Uh, I think that, and I've asked coaches the same question you're asking me over the years. You, to me, you want to catch a team that had a close loss. I think it's the best way to play a team. Now that wasn't really a close loss. It was just a disappointing, poorly played game by South Carolina. So I think it would have been better if they'd have lost 23 to 22 on a last second play. I think that's how you like to catch teams. And most coaches have agreed with me over that over the years. So I think it's not the best scenario, but it's better than them. I I think if they would have came out and beat Missouri by 21 points, it not only hurts our psyche because they think, oh, gosh, we just lost to the team they blew out. And, again, that's the way kids think. So if, if, uh, if you look at it from that standpoint, I think we're catching them at a good time, not the very best time, but I think it's a good time. What do you say we hit some questions in the mailbag? Love to, love to. 
All right. The mailbag is presented by Sutherland and Belk, a family-owned injury law firm. If you or a loved one has been on an accident, give Taylor or Russell a call. That number is 615-846-6200. See what your rights are and if they can help. Okay, VU Wars asks, Luke, I know you've been positive about Clark Lee's approach to building the program, but if you are the AD and we lose out for the season without an SEC win, you start worrying about whether the program can make the improvements it needs to make. Well, when Clark was hired, let's go back to the very beginning. When Clark was hired and I knew where the program was, I said to myself, two three years of struggles. When I say struggles, that means zero to one conference win, possibly two by the third year. And I think that's where we are. I think we're in the position now where we could win a conference game at any time against half of the conference at least. And I also think we're at this position where we could lose them all. So I don't think after this year there's any change, in my opinion, of Clark and what we're trying to get accomplished over there. My worries would be if there's some kind of uh, something not happening, and I mentioned this last week, if they're not following through on promises and that type of thing, which I don't think they are. And I don't think Clark would lie to me. He tells me, look, everything, the process is obviously not going as fast as we all want, but that they're coming through with everything they promised. So if that's the case, I think we're we're okay. Did you see the renderings they put out last week? I mean, they put out renderings before, but this was a little bit more. What did you think? I think it looks fine. I, think, I mean, again, now I don't know with those renderings. You know, I've seen renderings before, and then after they're complete, they look a lot different or a little different. And I, that's the thing. You know, they're fine. When when I went to Clemson again last week and I saw theirs, you know, and theirs is a top 10 in the country. Again, it's just bigger, not necessarily better at a place like a Clemson and an Oregon. They've got all the bells and whistles. I think that would be fine. And it, and it's proven, Chris, and you know this, I'm sure. Facilities actually have shown that there ain't that much difference in winning and of, of, of how it helps a program. Now, that's something I get arguments with from people. But, I, you know, well, let's just take Texas A&M and Ole Miss. Texas A&M has the best facilities in this conference. I've been to every one of them. And A&M's is tops right now. Now, that can change overnight if someone decides to build a $500 million thing. But Ole Miss's facilities are in the bottom four. And then Ole Miss goes to A&M and beats them. So there again, facilities are great. And don't get me wrong, Vanderbilt is way behind. We all know that. But uh, I think once they're complete, we're going to all be happy about it. Yeah, I think that's true to a certain degree. Um, I'll use an analogy like NFL kickers, right? Like all those guys hit roughly the same you know, percentages, you know, you got to be an 80% kicker to hold a roster spot. And like, so yeah, it it doesn't make much of a difference until like something happens and your starter gets hurt and you bring in a guy and you just, like you saw the Titans go through this for years where like they could not get a guy to hit simple kicks for anything. I I think that's my, my analogy is like Vanderbilt was in that department where it did not have a serviceable kicker to use the facilities analogies. And I, I do think it makes a difference there. I, th- I think the problem is um, your standard, if you're Vanderbilt, is like everybody else had already made that assumption, you know, <laughs> that that you need no. to have facilities up to a certain level to win, and, and, and theirs just weren't. So I think it will make a difference there. I do. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. 
This season of the Vandy Sports Podcast has been made possible by my friend, Dr. Jody Jones, DDS. When it comes to general or cosmetic dentistry services, Jody is the best in Nashville. Just check out his client list. It testifies to that. He sees movie stars, music stars, athletes, coaches, you name it. Jody is the dentist of choice for stars in Nashville, but he sees regular folks like you and I as well. What people love about Jody's office is the ambiance. It's relaxing. It's friendly. Someone described it to me as a tooth spa. Whether your needs are general or cosmetic, go see Jody today. Call him 615-270-2322. See him at 55 Music Square East, not far from downtown or the Vanderbilt campus. Jody is a former Vanderbilt football player and a huge Commodore booster, so go and talk Vandy sports with him while you're there. Go see Jody Jones today. Thank him for his support of this podcast because without it, this season would not be possible. Okay, uh, Ann Arbordor says, Luke, can you clarify Kayleen Curry's role on the staff of mental performance? Is this more of an off-field mental health role or actually focused on athletic performance from a psychological perspective? No, I'm sorry. I really can't speak to that. And the reason why is that position was not there when I left. I don't know Kayleen. I know who she is, but I don't know her. Uh, I would say this, uh, looking around, a lot of schools have one or two of, of her, quote, her position. So I, I think it's a good thing for kids, especially, uh, and, and you're raising children. It's a tough time to raise a child, in my opinion. I know it's always tough to raise a child, but I don't have children of my own. The Vanderbilt football players and uh, athletes were my children. But I can tell you this, they have a lot more challenges than what I had growing up. So I think it's a position that needs to, needs to be there. Uh, but I just can't answer Kayleen personally what, what, what her job entails exactly. Yeah, if we can take a sidebar for a minute. I, I'm with, I think that it's got to be so tough to be a player, a teenager. I'm worried about it as a, as a dad. Uh, I've been watching the mm-hmm. Netflix documentary the social dilemma, which is really interesting. I'm not done with it yet, uh, but but that's interesting. I mean, you see kids, um, you know, they, they have to like look. Back when you did most of your career at Vanderbilt, there were criticisms in the newspapers or, or some places like that, or sports talk radio. But there are places where kids don't usually go. Um, no, right. the parents might. Now it's on Twitter. Um, you know, it's it's a free for all at times or Facebook or whatever. And I'm not trying to vilify a particular social media company, but you know what I mean. And I mean, I you see exactly. the rates of suicide of athletes. I mean, goodness, yeah. how many, how many athletes have, have died just in the last few years at young ages from, from suicide or from substance abuse or something. It is just a completely different world than it was even a decade ago. It is. And, and you know, I can even think of it from an adult perspective. When you remember Donnie Moore, the picture of the angels that caused yeah. so much grief, you know, so for people to equate life and uh, try to make it life and death in the sports when you miss a field goal or whatever, and they, you know, abuse these kids, shame on those folks. It's, 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 it's awful. If your life is that small, and I love sports as much as anybody, and I love Vanderbilt as much as anybody, but to blame a kid if we have a tough, tough loss that shouldn't happen – publicly or get out there on social media and say something, all I can say is shame on those folks. The Superior says, Luke, can you tell us about the transition from Watson Brown to Jerry DiNardo? It seemed like his first season was a major positive change in the win column 
uh, and these ads, Bell Buckle, Jim Foster, memorable games, etc. Well, you know, it's funny. We could do a whole podcast on Bell Buckle and the changeover from Watson Brown to Jerry DiNardo. That was probably the largest, the biggest change in personality, approach, culture, however you want to put it, that I ever went through at Vanderbilt. Even more so when you went from Franklin to Mason uh, or from uh, Robbie Caldwell and Bobby Johnson to Franklin. It was the biggest change ever. Um, going to Bell Buckle was not a fun experience for any of the staff, that's for sure. We had a, it was awful. Uh, even for the players, it was a poor experience. But that transition was complete, I mean, daylight and dark. And Jerry being a uh, from uh, Brooklyn, New York, I believe it was, and his dad was a former cop. I got real close to him. Jerry ran with an iron fist. Very similar. I would say if you had to compare coaches at Vanderbilt, James Franklin and Jerry DiNardo were closer to each other than anybody as far as their approach and the way they uh, uh, conducted themselves on a daily basis with the players. Go Doors 94. Um, if Vanderbilt had hired a different AD, maybe Danny White or Boo Corrigan, five years ago, would the major programs and facilities be any different today? To me, to answer that, doesn't – would we have done a better job with the athletic director? Absolutely. But unless the university was in line with it, it doesn't matter. I've only seen one athletic director at, when, when I was at Vanderbilt that I felt like could do whatever he wanted and the university would say, yes, absolutely, let's do it, and that was Rory Kramer. When Kramer was at Vanderbilt, I felt like he was in charge. The entire department felt like he was in charge. Since that day, since Roy Kramer left there, and I believe our next AD was Paul Houlihan, I'm not certain, uh, I always felt like someone was over their shoulder. And uh, maybe that's just the way athletics had changed and evolved, but uh, it, 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 it all goes back to campus. If the board of trust and the chancellor aren't in, it doesn't really matter who the athletic director is sometimes. You know, this is a good sidebar. Um, you were telling me a story. I don't think we did this on podcast about a certain big donor who was coming to visit. Um, <laughs> and some, I, I guess, shuffling behind the scenes when that was going on to, to kind of hide what was going on in, in terms of how poor things had gotten. I don't know if you remember the story mm -hmm. I'm discussing, but, but if you do, this might be a good time to share it. Yeah, I'm, I probably need another hint or two in there if you can come up with it. I, I think I know where you're going. Well, it, was, it was a certain chief of, chief of staff who ran Derek Mason's program. Oh, yeah. If you yeah, well, Although I, if you I, got I, multiple ones, go <laughs> for it. Because I, I, think, oh, I think concealing of the truth uh, from, from the people who had some influence was a, a kind of a part of how things got left right. the way they were. Yeah, you know, when you have – former players, and I'll just use my place, the equipment room as an example. Uh, and I've probably said this before, but the equipment room should be, and maybe it's not now, but when I was there, I always felt like we're there for one reason only, and that's to service those players. Obviously, we have to take care of the coaches and the staff and all that, but the players were numero uno. And they always had a place, a sanctuary to come to speak. If they wanted to be mad at a coach and cuss out a coach in there and say, I hate that guy, whatever, the equipment room was the place for them to do it. It was kind of like a barbershop. So we got to hear a whole lot from the player standpoint. 
So when former players would come back through and see me, I had this certain person we were talking about that you're uh, alluding to. They would say, we don't want them up here. And I said, what do you mean? They're former players. They've given their blood, sweat, and tears to this place. They just want to check out the facilities and say hello. Well, unless they're given money or they played for James Franklin, which they were successful, we don't want them around. And that right there told me, that was when I decided I got to get out of this because I knew then I can't, I can't work with someone like this. And I've worked with tons of athletic directors and tons of coaches and tons of operation people, but that's the only person I could not work for. What was your view of that 80 search and how they, how they botched that so badly? Just frustrating because, you know, I got calls from people. You and I discussed a couple of things. I, I was just frustrated that there wasn't, I don't think there was a search when Candace was hired. I don't. No, I meant the one before was, that. Well, I think that too, hmm. but I mean, you, you can go right. the whole thing because they're, they're basically tied together. Right. Correct. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was completely bungled. And, and I'll say this, you know, like you mentioned about Danny White, you know, who knows Danny White may not have been a fit at Vanderbilt, but my goodness, when you start comparing resumes and so forth, it's a no brainer to look, but we've done that with coaches as well. I know a, a certain women's basketball coach that would have crawled to Nashville to be the coach. And you and I probably, I think you know who I'm talking about, a friend of ours. Well, there's two names that come to mind. I think I know the one, and the one that the one that you and I know has never been made public, and we kind of got that on right. on the, what do you call it, the, the premise that it would not be made public. Correct. Um, but you, look, uh, we went, our women's basketball program, if Tennessee had not been in this state, in Pat Summit, our women's basketball program was a top 10, top 15 program for a long, long time. And to have to replace it with someone that we did and then go to someone who had no experience hardly, who was a WNBA person, there was no reason for that. There was other agendas at place besides winning basketball games. And I, that's the part I can't handle. The first thing is, you can't tell me it's a great college experience for someone without the experience of winning. Kids want to win. That's why they come here. It's not because they want to, they have a political agenda or whatever it may be. Yeah, It's been about a decade since they won in women's hoops. I don't follow it that closely, but that used to be like clockwork. They were in the Sweet 16, sure. um, you know, give or, give or take a round. Sometimes maybe they'd lose in, in round two. Sometimes maybe they'd go Elite Eight. But that was – that was about as consistent as you could get. And it's been a long time since the program has even sniffed that territory. Yes. When Melanie, when Melanie left and even Melanie has success early on. Oh yeah. But a lot. similar to, similar to, to Derek Mason, the success they had, like Derek's beating Tennessee and going to a couple of bowls. When you see that it's no longer there and the effort's no longer there. And I do mean effort. If someone's just like, okay, I'm gonna ride this out. I got the rest of my contract. Then I'm I'm done. That's when you got to cut bait, and we don't do that. We have our history is we let it go too long. I think we did it with uh, Jan Van Bredekoff in men's basketball a year or two too long. So we have a history of waiting too long to make a coaching change. Is that where it fell apart for Melanie? Again, I wasn't that close to it, uh, but was it just a, a matter of effort at that point? Is that why that, that it went off I think a cliff? So. I think so. She had a ton of turnover in her coaches. Uh, 
you could just say, if you, it's funny. And I watch body language a lot. I'm a big believer in how someone carries themselves and body language. If you look at her, her first few years, she was so into the game, very uh, active on the sideline. It got to where she was like a statue with her arms crossed the last two or three years. And that was because she was done and she was either not interested in Vanderbilt. She had other things going on in her life. And, and, and that's the other thing. I'm not trying to be critical of Melanie Balkum necessarily. The fact is Vanderbilt has to make those decisions. When they see that happening, they've got to make the move. I don't blame Melanie for getting her paycheck and staying at Vanderbilt. I blame the, the athletic administration for not seeing it earlier and taking care of it. Okay, Raiders 1967 says, Luke, last week you spoke about the fact that every aspect in which you could measure Vanderbilt football was at an all-time low when Clark Lee arrived, including morale. You mentioned that the preceding the preceding uh, Coach Lee's arrival, players and parents of players had been posting on social media about the situation. What can you tell us about how Clark Lee has performed during recruiting visits by high school players when he stepped into that environment? What do you hear about the interaction of Coach Lee and his staff with recruits? Okay, I can speak to this one very well. I I, uh, I went to several of their football camps uh, and because I had friends that had kids in those camps, uh, one of them from out, or two of them from out of state, three of them from the state of Tennessee, and uh, their experience and what they told me afterwards. I have a kid who is a sophomore at Page High School who's a friend of mine that I went to watch him at the Vanderbilt camp, and he said, Luke, I was so impressed because at the end of the day, he's the only head coach, and he had been to seven other camps, the only head coach that came over and shook his hand and said hello to his father and the kid. So I think Clark has done everything he can in that respect. I'm just giving you one example. The other kids said the same thing. They all had a great experience. They they said the same thing, that there's obviously facility improvements that they're looking at and all that, that they that the other schools were ahead of Vanderbilt on. But that as far as the way they were treated, and the people, the, the, it was the best experience they had. One of the kids, in fact, was not even considering Vanderbilt until he came to that camp. He just came because he lives here and afterwards said, put him at the tape. He bypassed six teams and said, I want to play here when I get, you know, if I get recruited here because I'm a sophomore. He was a, he's a sophomore now. So that's, that's how impressed they were by. And, and, and like a lot of those camps you go to, Chris, and recruiting weekends, you don't even see the head coach very often. Yeah. He just – he's not even around. But to, to make that effort to shake hands with the kid, take a picture with him, his parents or whatever, that says a whole lot about Clark. He realizes where he what he needs to do. Raiders 1967 again. I can think of only one time when a Vanderbilt football team suffered a very close defeat – and was able to come back in the next game and win the next game. I'm thinking of the very tough defeat to Auburn in 1991 and the victories over Georgia and Ole Miss that followed. To beat South Carolina after the Missouri defeat, Vanderbilt would have to defy so much football history over the last 50 years. How difficult is that task for Clark Lee in that regard? Um, I I don't think it's that difficult. Again, I go back to what the kids are now. Kids don't care. They, I don't think kids could tell you who, Vander, who Vanderbilt lost to or whatever last year or year before. Kids don't really pay much attention to that anymore. Um, so I don't think it, it's just a resiliency in the kids. They just love playing ball. 
So if you love playing ball and you're one of the uh, one in the two deep, you're going to go out there this coming Saturday and just play what play as hard as you can, as well as you can, and let the chips fall where they may. I don't think it. I don't think it had. Now in the past, I do think kids paid more attention to history. You know, no, a visit to Notre Dame or so being offered by an LSU or something like that was important to kids. Nowadays, it's just I'm playing ball. Who can I play for this week and be good? And then if I want to transfer, I'll transfer, that type of thing. I just don't think it bothers them anymore. Knoxville Door 94. Everybody always wants to talk about the bad stuff, but can you tell us some of the stuff that Vanderbilt did well or does well when you were there when it comes to athletics? When I was there, um, for the longest time, and I don't want to sound like an old man here, but for the longest time, up until maybe the last, I don't know, up to around 2000, when James Franklin got there, there was a close-knit tightness to that athletic department, not with necessarily administrators, but with the, the workforce, the everyday guys that was closer than any place that I know in the conference, uh, speaking with my peers. And uh, that was really exceptional. I mean, everyone pitched in and helped each other. But as time, and again, this may be just a sign of the times, uh, I felt a big difference when James took over. We were winning games, but the athletic department was divided. You never saw anyone come by football. Uh, it was like football was in its own little world, and well, we're better than you down here on the other end of the building. And, and, it, and it, made, it stayed that way up through Derek Mason. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, Go Doors 94, what were your five favorite football wins at Vanderbilt? You witnessed in person and then the most painful losses. Well, gosh, there's so many on both sides of that. But uh, obviously, any win over Tennessee, because I, you know how I feel about Tennessee, any win over Tennessee was great. So let's put all of them tied for first. After that, the Auburn win here uh, when we had game day at Vanderbilt with Bobby Johnson. Um, in 80, 84, when we won at Alabama at their homecoming, first time they had lost at homecoming since 1922. Uh, that was an incredible feeling coming off the field. Uh, got hit with a chicken bone and a Coke can, but <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Uh, beating Florida in that same year uh, when we recovered a ball in the fumble in the end zone, beating Florida 31-29. Uh, those are some of the great wins. Uh, losses. The 79 loss to the Citadel uh, when we went 1-10 that year and stumped Mitchell ran for like 200 yards against us. That was tough. Uh, the law, One of the losses to MTSU, the loss to Temple that everyone talks about, those are the three of the toughest losses probably. I want to ask you about one win and one loss in particular that stand sure, out to me. Sure. I'll, I'll start with the, the fun one. Uh, 2012 Tennessee. Mm-hmm. That was the most surreal game I think I've ever been to. I just remember that's when we used to um, – you kind of had to go down to the field a little bit early to get to the post game, and so we would get to watch the last couple minutes from the sidelines. I, I don't right. remember if I was down there for the final play or not at that point, but I remember being on the field, um, and there were just players, and, and I can't remember if students were on the field a little bit. I think they were. I remember I just took my phone and just walked around and filmed about right. 10 minutes of stuff. And, you know, you, you look up and James Franklin would be whizzing by me on one shoulder and you'd have players, 
you know, mob behind me, behind the other. I, I just remember walking through with my phone filming everything because I'd, I'd never seen anything like that then. And I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that since. No, and if you think about that, you go back to that game. All right, we won 41 to 18. And to be honest with you, could have been worse. We we took took a knee yeah. or got, you know, we could have scored 48 to 55 on them. And that's something we've beaten Tennessee in the past, but they've usually been one touchdown or, you know, less than that type of games. We had never been able to sit back and enjoy an entire fourth quarter knowing you're going to win just what the margin would be. And I think that's why you had that feeling because it was just total joy on the sideline. And it was capped off during that game and what epitomized Vanderbilt football at that time to me was the carry spear tackle on Cordero Patterson. If you remember, he knocked himself out just about and just blasted Patterson on a kick return. And things like that just never had happened to Vanderbilt. All of a sudden, Tennessee, who had been the bullies, were getting bullied themselves. And I think that's what satisfied Vanderbilt fans. I remember I remember old Vandy Lance, I looked up in the stands. He sat probably 20 rows behind our bench at the time. And I look back at he's just sitting there. He wasn't cheering or anything, just tears rolling down his face. So I just, you know, just showed you what it, what it meant to folks that year. Okay, the other one I wanted to ask you about was it 1990 SMU? It, it was 90 or oh, 91. I'm I'm almost sure. I think 90, it was um, it's 90. Yeah. Yeah. It was my first let me just say this. It was my first game as the head equipment manager. Oh man. At Omni Stadium. Oh my goodness. Did, did you burn all the equipment about- afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. We we played at Omni Stadium. And their setup at the time was horrible. You had to push everything about 150 yards from a locker room that was a soccer locker room, I think, to the field. And they gave you two different locker rooms. So we had to dress the offense in one side, the defense in another. And it was just a, well, I won't say the word, something show. And absolutely one of the worst experiences. And uh, the, the, the truth of the matter was, you know, Paul Lillian was the athletic director. And one of my managers, who we always rode, you know, we, we, he was going to have to ride back with us. Well, he, without asking me, he goes up to our athletic director and asks if there's an extra seat on the plane. So I'm getting ripped by the athletic director on my very first game as head coach. And it was that. And then we get beat 44 to 7 by a team that had been on probation forever. It was awful. And I thought, boy, if it's like this, I don't know how long I can stay in this. Uh, but it did get better after, as time went on. In fact, we beat LSU the very next week. Yeah, um, I remember that game. Um, I remember <laughs> both games. But was um, well, first of all, that that was SMU played a bunch of walk-ons in that game. I think. Right, they had a good quarterback, though. That was the key. Mike Romo was his name. He like, seems like he threw for I don't know four hundred fifty yards. We had a middle linebacker named Mike Gandolfo, who was really playing out of position. We just didn't have a Mike linebacker for whatever reason, whether depth or we had an injury, I can't remember. But for some reason, Mike had to play in the middle of the defense, and he was getting the – you know, I'm not trying to rip on Mike at all. It's not his fault. He was put in a position he shouldn't have been in. But he was – he couldn't get our calls right. At the time, Doug Matthews, I think, was our defensive coordinator, the the UT fan now that played at Bandy, Doug Matthews. But – I can remember at halftime, Coach Matthews asked one of our D linemen, 
here's how confusing everything was. Joel Walker, he said, Joel, are you getting double teamed? And Joel said, I think so. So that's where we were. We didn't even know if we were getting double teamed. <laughs> so it was a it was a long day. A long day. And it poured down rain. And our chancellor at the time, Joe Wyatt, had his big buddy, uh, old buddies there at the game. And he had to sit with them and uh, take all their abuse. It was just not a good day. Okay. We're, was that a situation where you just walked in and like you had some forewarning that, okay, this is not going to go well today? Or was that just a complete shock to you and everyone? Complete shock to everyone. Uh, Coach Brown, you know, during practice that week, when we were running their stuff, we were, we understood, we got our keys and we were giving, you know, everybody was, I think it was just one of those things when the lights went up for Mike with, he, he was trying to set our defense and get us ready. And it just didn't happen. They, in other words, we were out of position all day long. You know how, when you watch Tennessee play and they have these receivers running wide open. Yes. That's exactly what it was that night. Everything was whatever defense. If we brought a blitz, it's like they knew what we were going to do defensively. It's like they had our playbook on defense. Because whatever we did, they ran the perfect play to counter it. And it, it, they were gashing us on every play. And then the, then they, if they couldn't gash us, they'd flow, throw for five yards every time and, and move, move the chains. It was just – and I think Forrest Gregg was their coach. You remember Forrest Gregg, old Green Bay Packers? Yes. He was their coach. And, buddy, he tried his best to score as much, much as he could. He was, he was uh, relentless on what he was trying to do to us. We were lucky it was only 44 to 7. I think I remember hearing people say this um, on our board. I, I wasn't covering it then, but I think Joe White decided to make a coaching change that night, did he not? Is that true? Out of frustration, I, I'd heard that, but I didn't hear that that night. I heard that about five weeks later on. Uh, I, I know that, it, what, that Watson Brown didn't know that. And it wasn't – I think he just realized, hey, everybody's frustrated. And then when we beat LSU the next week, the first person I see in the locker room is Joe White. So, you know, <laughs> he was celebrating everybody else, thinking, oh, we're okay. It was just a th- – you know, but no. And then I, we, we proceeded to not win a game after the LSU win. Oh, okay, same question with Temple and Mason's debut. Did, did you go into that knowing, hey, we're screwed? No. I had no idea. You first of all the turnovers. If you remember, didn't we turn it over a bunch, like six or seven times? Yeah, I think that was part of why it was forty-seven to seven or whatever it was. But even if we hadn't turned it over, we'd have still lost the football game, probably twenty-one to seven. I just didn't realize how inept we were going to be. As far again, going back to communications. See, here's something that I don't know if a lot of people know this. Maybe they do. Coaching. There's there's coaches that are great Monday through Friday, but when Saturday comes and they've got a and I'm talking about coordinators more than position coaches. When they have to call the defense or call the offense and the game's moving fast, a lot of them just can't handle it. And you don't know that until it happens. We had a coach, I think his name was David Kotulski, was running the defense. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and bless his heart, it, it just, the game, had, you know, you hear the games pass people by. In my opinion, the game had passed him by. His, his whole, everything he went through was just too slow. And, the, you know, we're looking to the sideline and they're getting ready to snap the ball and we don't know what defense we're in. We don't, you know. So there's no confidence. That What does that breed? When you look over and the coaches are, don't know what to tell you, you certainly aren't going to play well. 
you were gone by UNLV 2019, right? Yeah, I was there, but uh, <laughs> I wish I hadn't have been. Yes, yeah, but, that was, but I mean, I you're you're count. pretty well. Yeah, you're pretty well connected, though. I was. I remember yeah. I came home from that game, and I, I think I wrote just enough of a game story. Uh, d- just to, to say I did, I was getting texts left and right from Booster saying, man, I think Malcolm's making a coaching change and it might be tonight. Um, I, I don't know. I've always wondered what happened between that and, and um, you know, <laughs> the rest of well, the, the glorious tenure of Derek Mason. Well, I think at that point it was just like, okay, how quick can we get, get him out the door? But we didn't do what we should have done. We didn't. We, we went ahead through the COVID year and – went through that pit and that that was you know and you and I've talked about this. I my only concern at that point was those players. Yeah, I felt sorry for our fans because we're getting abused, but I just felt sorry for what those players were going through. Not the ones that had given up and didn't give effort or whatever, but the ones that had you know, that were juniors and seniors and had fought to try to make things better and they weren't getting any help from the administration or the coaches. It was it was sad. I wonder, um, I, I, see, I think by that time, Derek was more, I mean, this is just my impression. I was never that close to Derek. I, I felt like he was more preoccupied with public perception and hanging on to his job than he was anything else. I think he was reading and, and listening to, to anything and everything. And, um, yeah, he was yeah. grasping straws. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think, go ahead. No, and, and again, like I said last week, he was listening to the wrong person. And I don't yeah. think it was people. It was person. And, you know, when you confide in someone who uh, doesn't have your best interest at heart, uh, doing things for whatever, you know, when he thinks when he thinks any publicity is good publicity, you're in trouble because that's what that was. Was was Grooms the one in charge of reading and listening to anything and everything and sending it his way? Absolutely. Yeah, I Absolutely. I remember. I always felt like that rant after the Missouri game um, was was directed somewhat at me, um, <laughs> because I I like I said the week before was the UNLV game, and and based on the text I was getting and stuff people were saying, I thought he isn't going to be the coach next week, um, and and then he wins the game. Um, and he's very angry afterwards with Don Davenport and, and don't question me and everything. The, the other moment that I got was he got really hot with me. Um, this was about a week or two before the Georgia game to open the season. Um, I got a phone call on a Sunday from him that I had, I dropped the tidbit about Devin Cochran being hurt in our war room. And he was, he was furious with me over that one. Well, I'm just thinking you, I, you're, you're focusing on the wrong stuff. Go manage your team. Exactly. Exactly. Why in the world do you care about that? With all the problems you got with your football team and trying to win a football game, and you're concerned with that. I mean, yeah, it was, that's silly. That's just silly. That, well, and, and, you know, that's why he should have been gone. I mean, it just, it should have been. And again, I don't have anything against Derek as a person. I told Derek before I left that he's making a mistake, allowing this person to, make all these decisions. And he tried to defend him saying, well, he's young. He's going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes. He's just young. He's learning. And I said, well, Derek, I totally disagree. We just, you know, I, how in the world I've been around the place 40 years 
and I've been able to work with and for everybody that's been in that building except this one person. So where do you think the, the issue lies? Yeah. The other coach that was like that was James Franklin, and, and it was for completely oh, different yeah. reasons. I, th- I think James was stalking the next job, and, and he didn't want anything that made him look like less of a coach. And you know right. the story. That's why he got he got furious with me um, over including in a game story that um, <laughs> that Missouri's quarterback had gotten hurt. Um, back when back when they remember the game, I think it was nineteen to twelve. They won on the road. Uh, James yeah. Franklin from Missouri got hurt. Corbin Burke stressor came in. I mean, he couldn't yep. throw it in the ocean with either hand. Um, right. and I remember I, he and I, James and I had it out the next week over that. <laughs> yeah. I remember that game. Yeah. It was incredibly cold that night. Uh, yeah. I'm like, you just, you just won the game. Just, just why, why yeah. are you doing this? Well, James, the perfect example of a coach who has an agenda is James Franklin. Oh, you know, no doubt. Out, I guarantee you, he's trying to figure out right now. Okay. I'm winning at Penn State, but I can't win the big one, so to speak. And he absolutely hates the fact that he can't that he's 0 11 against he's the top 10 teams. Maybe I don't want to misspeak, but he hasn't won a game against the top 10 team in a long time, if if ever there at Penn State. So they yeah. gagged one up against Ohio State over the weekend. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. and yeah. I, I don't I don't hate James. I just I just kind I of hide at it. Um, the the best the best moment we had. Do you remember my photographer Mike Rapp? I don't think you knew Mike, but you probably knew of him. I um, probably saw him. Know his hand. Yeah, when when we were trying to get through some stuff, James said, "Let's let's grab lunch at Bricktops." Um, I don't remember. James started the conversation, rattled off a bunch of stuff. <laughs> I think Mike looked at him in the middle of it, and he said, "Look, man." Um, We've been here before you were here, and we'll be here after you were here. I don't think he knew what to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, James oh. was one of those guys that I knew wasn't going to be at Vanderbilt long, whether he won or lost. I just knew that. I knew he was not yeah. long for Vanderbilt. I was I was not on his Christmas card list. And I, I didn't hate the guy. I still don't. I just, I just thought no, it was I respect, silly. Listen, as far as working hard, he got after it. There's no denying that. He left no stone unturned. He did everything he can to win football games. But was he doing it for Vanderbilt or doing it for his next job? That's what. Well, I think we I think we know the answer. Okay, uh, this yeah. may be the last one. Um, okay. Speaking of James Franklin, Luke, do you recall when James Franklin had the ticket office accept tickets back from season ticket holders who weren't going to use them and give them or sell them to local Vandy fans? That made it as easy as possible with car side service in the Magugan lot. Would this work again today to some extent at least? Do you see Clark, Lee, or anybody in the AD brainstorming for ideas like this to grow the fan base? I don't see it happening, but I, I did like that, honestly. But I'm I'm a, I'm a little bit, and I understand you have to make money. I get all that. But, like, what's going to happen to these kids? And I'm, I'll suggest publicly right now that we should have senior day against uh, Florida. Uh, what's going to – why would you want to have senior day in front of 30 – Five uh, to thirty thousand yeah. Tennessee. Why do you want to do that to those kids? When they're going to walk out there on senior day, and the people that are in the stands are going to boo them. Think about that. No one's yeah. thinking about that. But if, if it's me, and I should have probably told Clark this the other day, 
have your senior day, Florida. Don't subject your kids to that. That's not right. Have they done that before, change it to a non-Tennessee game because of that reason? No, I don't think so. Now, we've had it because, remember, when we went through that stretch where we played Wake Forest after the Tennessee game? Yes. So we had senior days on those games instead. But as far as not having it on Tennessee, you know, I don't have a problem with that. I think we should. Now, there's been years when if Tennessee came in here five and five, it's fine because you still got quite a bit of Andy fans. But I know how Vanderbilt fans are. There's two kinds. One of them won't go because we don't have a chance to win in their mind. And the second one is they're not going to go because they don't want to be abused by Tennessee fans because they're getting abused by them at work all week long. So, you know, they're going to either give up their tickets or whatever it may be. But I just hate it for those kids because I saw it. The worst I ever saw it was 98 uh, when uh, when they won the national championship and they came in here undefeated. And there was maybe 1,000 to 1,500 Vanderbilt fans. The rest were Tennessee. So it's going to be something like that, unfortunately, probably. Luke, any parting thoughts before we end the show today? No, just excited about the South Carolina game. I'll, I'll predict like I did against Missouri that we'll have a chance to win it in the fourth quarter. I think it's going to be that type of game. Um, I didn't think we were 14 points worse than Missouri, and I think this is a one-score game either way, should be. Uh, so if you're if you're a true Vandy fan, get out and support them because – Again, I've always said this, our kids don't get home games. So you have a chance if you're a Vandy fan to help that. Uh, I don't think South Carolina bring a ton of folks. They'll bring some because it's Nashville and they want to party on lower broad. But if you, if you want to take it and go to the game, go come, come see them. I'm a, I've got a previous engagement. I won't get there till probably right at halftime. Uh, but I'll be there. I'll be there, and I hopefully when I get there, we'll be up a touchdown or two. Hey, Luke, thanks for joining me on your vacation, and I look forward to catching you next week. All right. Thank you, Chris. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We thank our presenting sponsor, Jody Jones DDS. We thank our other sponsors, Sutherland and Belk, Michael Kendrick of the Kendrick Group, and MyPerfectFranchise.net. If you're interested in sponsoring this podcast, and that's how we make this work, please email me at chrislee70 at gmail.com. We also ask that you subscribe to our website, vandysports.com. That is $99 a year. You get things there that you don't get here. And of course, please rate, review, and subscribe where you see our podcast. That helps us get noticed. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at vandysports.com. Follow me at chrislee70. And finally, subscribe to our Vandy Sports YouTube channel as well. Thank you for listening to the Vandy Sports Podcast, which is part of the 440 Network. I'm your host, Chris Lee. We'll catch you with another episode coming very soon.